0: rodney digestive enzymes (laughs) my guy digestive enzymes they say that you have the second most neurotransmitters in your stomach
1: next to your brain so we'll do the whole story real quick i so i'm i did a soup cleanse i'm on a cleanse right now one of the big things is like really cranking out and getting my my digestion back on track and getting it as healthy as possible. So I'm taking digestive enzymes and I'm going to continue it past just all this. But to your point, your immune system lives in your gut. Uh, Hell, your uh, melatonin, most of it's made in your gut. A lot of your sex hormones are made in the gut and sent out other places. So it's just like, you got to take care of the gut. You know what I'm saying? Take care of it. Take Take care care of the gut. Take care of it. Take, or care, of God. take care, care of the gut because how you break down the food and how you get rid of the food is paramount to your health. Mm. It's good. So I'm just I'm a fan of them. I'm a fan of them. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not <laughs> saying to make you. Me laugh now. I'm <laughs> trying I'm to not, get to that
0: point. I'm trying not trying that.
1: to make everybody here take them. <laughs> Or even questioning yourself because you don't. This is not a Rodney go buy thing. Like, I'm not making <laughs> money for this. I just, this is what, this is a a lens into the who and what I am.
0: <laughs> Welcome back to the More Comment podcast.
1: I am your co-host, Keith. I'm Rodney, and... We're about compassionate conversation. We're about anchoring humanity in compassionate conversation. Just want to talk to you. Just sit. Just grab a seat. Sit down with me for a second. We'll talk to you about compassion. You see, compassion is this this sense of grace and space that we can give to other human beings because they are human beings. Not because we like them. Not because we agree with them. Not because we're trying to manipulate them. Just because they're human. That's it. And we're trying to get better at it. I mean, really, this experiment is about us getting better at this. And hopefully you are, are driven and inspired to do the same through listening. And right now we're about to get into an amazing conversation with Dr. Grant. Keith, tell him about it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Dr. Donald Grant.
0: Yeah, like he's an author and he de- he's got this new research that he's doing about the oppressor's um generational trauma mm-hmm. um and the nuance of this conversation i ask a lot of questions uh rodney asks a lot of questions because the the, the idea of it can be a little triggering right and so having this nuanced conversation to understand it why it matters we end up not talking too much about his background, unfortunately, because it's such a captivating conversation and I'm super excited to to be bringing it and having it.
1: Yeah, I mean, we get into what Keith just said, white, white on white violence. We get into the fallacy of supremacy. We get into empathetic awareness. Mm, we get into one. cultural empathy. It's just so much goodness in this. It's dripping with goodness. So I'm just going to say... Before we get you into this, share this. Share this or any episode that you like. Share it with a friend because sharing is caring. It is uh, scientifically proven that sharing is caring. And go to moreincommonent.com. That's our website. You can find all things more in common. That's it. Let's go. That's it. Let's go.
2: every children's book that was published in 2019, 50% had white children as the primary lead characters. 27% had trucks and animals as the lead characters. The other 23% were an aggregate of all children of color, Asian American, Black American, Latinx, and indigenous people. They made up only 23%. And so when you think about the magnitude of the fallacy of white supremacy, it's important to pay attention to the pain associated with dismantling this.
0: So today we are with the one and only Dr. Donald E. Grant Jr who's been married for 17 years, the father of an 11-year-old, and is an equity, diversity, inclusion, and impact practitioner and mental health expert, who currently serves in two executive director roles, one with his boutique training and consulting firm, Mindful Training Solutions, and the other at Pacific Oaks College's Center for Community and Social Impact. Dr. Grant has a long history of direct mental health service, delivery, and administrative oversight for foster care systems, education systems, and homeless mental wellness services. He is an international speaker and workshop facilitator, film and TV consultant, and published author. His two books, A Moon for Us All and Black Men, Intergenerational Colonialism and Behavioral Health. A Noose Across Nations, are available now. Dr. Grant, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me. How are you guys doing today? Ah, feeling good, dude. Fantastic. Good to have yeah. you on. A little toasty in my, uh, happy to be in my here. office here, but uh might be sweating by the end of this, but there we go. feeling good. <laughs> All right, so you've done a lot of amazing things, and you're into some interesting new research that you are doing to prepare for your next book. White on white crime, old lies in contemporary times. So we've talked a lot on our show, maybe not a lot. That might be a little overemphasis, but uh, we've (laughs) talked quite a bit about generational influence, generational trauma. But we haven't gone down the path that this book looks to explore. So, I I have it. it, It's two parts, but I'm not going to ask it in two parts. Let's start with: Can you summarize the research? Because I certainly don't want to explain it poorly and um, and and talk a little bit about what it is that you're studying right now. And let's get into that conversation.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, Again, guys, thanks for having me today. It's uh, it's exciting to have this conversation. I love your platform and what you guys uh, are looking to achieve. And I think this conversation is so apropos for, um, you know, what you guys are doing. Um, So, yeah. White on white crime. Um, old lies in contemporary times is kind of a reflection on how we look um, at the history of people. And what I know is that, you know, when we first learned about intergenerational trauma, we were looking at the children of Holocaust survivors. There were these therapists in the 60s who were like, why is my whole caseload filled with children whose parents survived the Holocaust? And then they began to discover that the experience of the Holocaust lived with these kids even though they had not experienced it you know fast forward 50 years 100 years not 100 years fast forward 50 years um they did the same research on indigenous people across the country i mean across the world and their experiences with colonization and they've determined that a lot of what we see with first nations people today with the you know horrible outcomes related to alcoholism, school attrition, substance abuse, and the real dangers going on in their communities um, is connected to their intergenerational experience with European colonialism, right? Um, We've done that with African American people. We've done that with a variety of groups. There's this whole set of research on immigration trauma for Asian Americans and Latinx Americans, um, how it lives across generations. But we never seem to talk about how white people were impacted by those same times and how white generations um, have been impacted. And I think we're doing ourselves a huge disservice by not having that conversation um, because that conversation is what results in what we saw at the Capitol on January 6th, right? Um, And so what the research is saying, what I'm looking at right now, um, and it's kind of new because most people are not applying this developmental type framework to white people um, because we've been trained not to. We've been trained to have this um, threshold of normalcy that is white and everything else is gauged against that. And so it's rare that people will dig into a layer of research that says, okay, what if white is not normal? What if we approach whiteness in the same way we approach every other thing and not use it as this kind of standard rubric? And that's what I'm doing Um, I'm saying that white identity is not and should not be considered as it is. Um, And where I'm starting is the demonstration that um, white American identity is grounded in the oppression of others, meaning that when Europeans, um, when European immigrants arrived on this land, they weren't white. They were German. They were Irish. They were Polish. They became white through a process. Now, that whole piece of research is well articulated, well-documented, lots of people have written about that. Um, But what we haven't talked about is, you know, what happened to Ishmael as he began to throw away his culture? How did he raise his kids differently to fight any sort of affinity to their culture? And what does that mean? You know, what does it mean that the 11-year-old girl, when she came home from school, her dad was like, pack a sandwich. We're going to chase down some black dudes and hang them from trees and set them on fire. And you're going to watch this. um, Think about that today as parents. You guys have daughters like, mm -hmm. you know, really like think about that for a moment, like you coming home and taking your daughter to watch you murder somebody and hang them from a tree. Um, We don't talk about the fact that that little girl is now the age of a college student's grandmother um and what that means for America today um so i want to talk about those intergenerational lies of white supremacy and now that these young centennials are not living in that world what does that mean for the engagement between a centennial and a you know gen xer or a boomer when their 15 year old daughter is sitting at the table like dude you can't say that you can't do that that's not okay Um, We're not having that conversation. So I want to have that conversation.
1: One of the biggest frustrations for me post Floyd is in conversations I've had with white folk contemporaries that say, oh, well, it'll be okay. The kids, the kids will fix it. And it's such a, frankly, lazy response. And and it pays no respect to the fact that like what they're learning is coming from you. So if you don't work to improve, then why? Like they, they're going to be damn near a carbon copy. So this is amazing uh, work that you're. I've heard that a lot.
0: Like generations need to die off in order for things to move. But it's... It's like, but, but
1: how did like, how do you think we got here? Like, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, I heard an analogy once I was watching a college football game. It was a B- Bama was playing who knows. And the quarterback of the team, they they were showing like kind of his lineage. Um, his father was a Bama quarterback. His grandfather was a Bama quarterback. And as they explained that, they showed a picture of him in a crib with a football and a Bama uh, little snitted sweater. I was like, oh shit, that's how racism happens. Like, like <laughs> basically, little kids are in the bassinet with like a little KKK hoodie. Like it's invisible, but it's there. Like, it's taught just like that. Oh, you're going yep. to be a quarterback. And he knew nothing yep. else. He didn't have and a choice. Up,
0: and if you... You are better than them. So I, I have a lot of questions. Um, but I want to start with, like, what inspired this? Mm. First of all, what's the hypothesis and what inspired it?
2: Um, The hypothesis is that white people are impacted by... no. I guess a hypothesis has to be set inside of a question. Are white people impacted by intergenerational trauma? And if so, how? Mm. And so, um, first of all, we don't usually consider the oppressor role as traumatic. And I guess the first premise is that we're decolonizing that to say that it is, in fact, likely, um, not likely, the, the oppressor role is traumatic let's just start there and mm-hmm. so once we decolonize that definition then we move into were those traumas intergenerationally passed what are the outcomes and what are the consequences for um, um intergenerational relationships um how are grandpa and sally going to engage at the dinner table when when we were kids, if Grandpa said some shit at the dinner table, everybody was like, "Oh, that's just Joe. Look at Joe." <laughs> but the fifteen year olds today are not standing for it. They're not. Yeah. They're not yeah. okay with it. Yeah. Um, hey, they
1: they started out questionable with the tie pod thing, but they came back around when it came to racism. Well, <laughs> I mean, it, it, I think it, <laughs> it's so good. Um,
0: it's it's interesting because then you think about this past year with the or the last couple of years with the bye bye boomer sentiment. Right, like Mm. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, Um,
2: but marginally,
0: yeah. The millennials, the young millennials, Gen Zers, or really, you know, had this. You're an antiquated generation. I am no longer acknowledging or Mm. utilizing you, and it became this generalization. That is very much that premise of we're not tolerating it anymore, but at the same time, we're also intolerating it. Right. It's also
1: right. assigning it to age, like yeah. racism doesn't have. You don't have to be old to be racist. Because I, if I if I could run through my brain, I do it a little bit, I, I, a little bit. But why do people seem to couch racism in in an age age bracket?
0: Kind different of generation. It's a different time. Yeah.
1: you got to find a to blame them it. for the problem than me. Yeah, or?
2: yeah, yeah. You got to other it. You got to other it. So Gen Xers, Gen Zers are looking at Xers saying, "You guys don't have it right." Gen mm. Xers are looking at, you don't have it right. And so, yeah, everybody, you if you can other it, you can abscond yourself from the full responsibility to fight it. It's kind of like, if you old people got it right, everything will be okay, mm. while young people are still throwing microaggressions all around and don't get that next level of depth. And so everybody has work to do, no matter what generation you are in. So It kind
1: of okay. seems like this work could give some permission, some grace to white folk to let go of the fragility and say, like, you're damaged, too. Like, it, I'm not the only one that hurt, is hurting from this. It turns out you are, too. Let's sit down and, like,
2: heal together. Well, here's the thing, and, and that is that is a part of the goal, um, is to – I hate when I pronounce the A in goal – that's a part of the goal. Um, <laughs> I don't even know why I did that. It's kind of like it's kind of like the person who pronounces. I hate people. Not hate people. It annoys wait. me when when people pronounce the first T and important, but important. Oh, important. Yeah, that annoys <laughs> or, me. And so what? I don't know where, where When that you pronounce a...
1: the H in what or or who, or, or, or they enunciate the the, the non-existent
2: R in washer? Oh, yeah, Uh, I can never say that word. I didn't say the extra R in February for years. And then I realized I really need to incorporate that in because it's legitimately there. It's not February. It's it's February. February. Yeah, um, we should have a have a movement to remove that R out of February because it just makes it so difficult (laughs) to say. And while we're at it, we'll change how to spell separate because that's also more challenging than it needs to be. Um, So the answer to your question um, is when um, it is important that we talk about that because when we think about you being told by your father, your hero, if that's the case, that you are the salt of the earth. And then we know that. Right now, as of 2019, every single children's book that was published in 2019, rather, um, I don't have the stats for uh, 2021, but every children's book that was published in 2019, 50% had white children as the primary lead characters. 27% had trucks and animals as the lead characters. The other 23% were an aggregate of all children of color, Asian American, Black American, Latinx, and indigenous people. They made up only 23%. And so when you think about the magnitude of the fallacy of white supremacy, it's important to pay attention to the pain associated with dismantling this. And so don't hear me saying my goal is to take care of white supremacists, but you know, I get the opportunity to sit inside rooms with millionaire, with white men who are millionaires who are making decisions for major corporations around the world, and I get to help them understand how their fragility is being operationalized. And now, with the research that I have, I'm also able to demonstrate this has been a lie inside your world for the last 500 years. Not only do you believe it, but everybody around you has made you to believe it, too. It's kind of like the Truman Show. And now all white people in the Truman Show have reached the end of the ocean, and they're knocking against that big bubble that they were in. And they're like, holy shit. We're really um, not genetically better than everybody else. For
1: everybody listening, something that became acutely aware to me as a father and kind of highlighted my own experience, Netflix at Christmas. Look at who the actors are. Like, this year, we got Jingle Jangle. That's the first time I can recall seeing a all-black cast, like, child's movie at Christmas and children's movie. And I started just scrolling through Netflix. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, there is just – it is so rare to find – any person of color as a lead in any movie um, for the holidays. And like, what do, do people of color not celebrate the holidays or like what's going on here?
2: Unless it's a, unless it's an all black thing, like, unless yes. it's like right. yes. Latifa and Morris right. Chestnut, and there's, there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. Medea, but I mean, yeah. Yeah. But the problem with that is when we have stories that continue to be dominated by white people and we call it white centering, um, Everything has so much white centering that it does not just a disservice to black and to white people in my research that I'm talking about, but it also does a, does a disservice to black people. Um, they did an assessment about the number of stories in books where black kids are hiking or swimming or doing things in nature. And they've built this correlation that demonstrates because kids don't see themselves in literature doing those things it impacts their affinity to those things. Mm. Um, and, and so there's so much work to do when we minimize how the ecology, there's this theorist who I really ground all my work in, Yuri Broffenbrenner, and it is the um, bioecological model of human development that talks about all the different systems that we exist in at any given moment and how each of them impacts our development in a different way. It's a really important uh, model to pay attention to.
0: So what was your inspiration to
2: look into this? Um. Well, I am a, so I'll give a two-part answer. I'll give a selfish answer and I'll give my um, purpose, my life's purpose answer. Um, so I'll give my life purpose, my life's purpose answer first. Um, and so when I look at, how this world is moving forward, I don't feel like we are adequately representing everybody consistently. And I feel like we consistently move forward with, the deficits model for so many different groups. And we just act like we're not seeing white people do what they do. And notice when I'm talking white people, I'm not attacking white people, I'm attacking white supremacy um, and the individuals who participate in its perpetuation, um, most of whom are white. And so that's not meaning that all white people participate in it. um, But I'm saying this to say that There's an awakening and a reckoning that needs to happen. And if it's going to happen effectively, particularly according to the theories of um, um, ecology, we have to address it from all ends. If white people continue to buy into and perpetuate the fallacy of supremacy, the fallacy of their supremacy specifically, We're never going to be able to get past this. And, um, you know, we have to be able to be honest and say white people have been told throughout their generational history that they are better than other people. And contemporary American white identity is grounded in a hierarchy that must be flattened and broken. Um, Otherwise, white people are going to continue to meet with disappointment that is oftentimes operationalized in violence and I want to be safe. Um, And so that was another part of that kind of research lens, professional, um, professional angle. And I also look to always consistently contribute something new to whatever canon I'm contributing to. And so um, if it's the children's world, I want something new there. If it's the adult world, Um, Like my first book was something that had not been researched before, and I wanted to do that. Uh, So, the second reason to answer your question I'm sick and tired of walking around the world knowing that I have an expertise and I have a lens of global experience in a way that is consistently minimized as a result of white supremacy. I'm sick of white dudes walking into a space automatically believing that they're better than me simply as a result of group membership that they had nothing to do with getting into. Um, I, I'm I'm sick of that shit. I'm sick. I'm sick of it. And so, um, you know, it's not a way to demean white people, but it's a way to level set and say, dude, you are no fucking better than me or my son. And you need to stop believing that because I'm sick of sitting next to you looking at your air of arrogance on your assumption um, that your your lack of melanin provides this layer of superiority. Um, And so we just need to get rid of it. Uh, My son is in primarily white environments, and I, I, I want him to go in with the strength of knowing that none of these people are better than him. He is just as good, just as effective um, as they are. And I I, I don't want to see him injured consistently in this way. And so I have to hold responsibility in dismantling that fallacy intergenerationally, um, in a way that's empathic, in a way that helps white people know I get why you're mad. I'd be pissed too.
0: There's there are two two tight observations. A couple of things happen in what you were talking about, and something triggered in my mind um there is a common dialogue um generational dialogue of immigrants who came in the last three to four generations right italians irish my grandfather my great grandfather my father did not have it easy right Mm -hmm. um We changed our last name. We didn't say it the Italian way because we would, we got discriminated against as well. What that storyline does is it ignores the generational subjugation of minorities, in particular people of color. And it tries to create a false equivalency because of individual negative experience, right? And what that then creates is this need for you to say it's not all white people. We hear it all the time, right? It's not all white people. I'm not saying you're bad out there. Like I'm not saying it's you. Mm. And the reason that exists is because we don't generally accept the inconsistencies of plight but we also to your research don't discuss the existence of plight for everybody and we create that system that says well you're white so well yeah you had it but it wasn't so bad so i think what's interesting about your research tying that entire thought together is there is a I think a place where it can help create, get rid of that discussion, right? And kind of normalize like, yes, you have trauma too. So let's talk about it so we can talk about this and then we can all get to the table and be better for our going forward strategy rather than having to argue and quibble over who had it worse. Kind
2: of, sort of, kind of, sort of. Okay. Not not exact not exactly like that. I, I just I'll just add a couple of pieces of reframe to that for uh, yeah for the, for the discussion. Um, the discussion on trauma for me is not about creating white sympathy. It's more about saying face up to how face up to the etiology of your behaviors. It's less about okay we know we know that you've been traumatized. It's kind of like. Because right now, Hollywood's gonna take care of that for us, right? We're gonna see this slew of um, white compassion films, right? That are compensating for the dismantling of white supremacy. Um, and so, my research aim is not that at all to provide this lens, right? Um, I don't know how many people saw Hillbilly Elegy. Um, I, it I talks have about chosen not to watch it, but yeah. It's actually a great film. It's, it's it? a wonderful okay. film. Absolutely. I, I believe that Glenn Close is going to uh, be nominated for a Grammy. Well, no, she didn't sing an Oscar for the film because she <laughs> disappeared. Um, the casting director will probably, probably be nominated for something. A wonderful film. The reason I bring it up, though, is because as we watch the dismantling of white supremacy white people are going to need something to hold the, the void in the container. And that's going to come in this space of white sympathy films. So you got Hillbilly Elegy, Nomad's Land is coming out soon, I think. And you're going to see this whole parade. Green Book in a way. (laughs) Yep. 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 You know, revisioning the story. So you're going to see this fill that void. And so I just want to be clear that my research on the trauma of white supremacy is not to level the playing field to be able to say, we have all experienced trauma because mm-hmm. what we know is that at each equal strata, what, when you op- when you um, um, create a, a, an equivalent for socioeconomic status, we know that racism is embedded heavily in those spaces. And we know that white folk are still being told that, yeah, you're poor and they're poor, but your poverty is way better than their poverty and mm-hmm. you are way better than them. And so I will always acknowledge that there are white people who have been in foster care, who have had experiences with domestic violence, who have had abuse. Like those are all, you know, unequivocal. I used to work in um, oversee foster care systems here in LA County. And so I've seen every group of people um, engaged. And so let's say foster care, for instance, Foster care doesn't discriminate. There's kids in foster care everywhere. But guess what? Foster care does discriminate because black and brown kids are aging out of the foster care system at a disproportionate rate, meaning that they're 18 years old and nobody's ever adopted them. We don't have that problem with white kids. And so no matter what struggle we're talking about, we know that each of those struggles is baked into a system of structural racism. And as a result, people who are darker skinned are experiencing worse outcomes. And so, yeah, I just wanted to clear that up, that my goal is not to level set in that way. Um, I think it's important. I'm glad you
0: did. Right. And I and I think for me, I, I see it as an ancillary impact, but at the same time, also the cause of potential blowback. Right. Like, how do you foresee it or see it now? Like, what are you trying to do? Because on the surface, if I don't go out, read the book and listen to this amazing conversation to understand the nuance and the truth behind what you're doing, I could look at, or people could look at you, especially in the time of wokeness, right? And be like, we don't need that. Like,
2: why are you trying to placate me? Yeah. White people. Who's this, who's this dude tap dancing? Yeah, 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 yeah. What you'll find about me, what you'll find about me <laughs> is that there are, there's lots of shoes in my closet, but at last time I checked, Ferragamo doesn't make tap dance shoes. And so, um, there's no tap dancing on this side. It is an effort. And there's it, and that's it. That's an important nuance. I do some work with black police officers out here in Los Angeles County and, you know, they're the dichotomy that they deal with and that, when they're in the Black community, they have people calling them Uncle Toms. And when they're in the police station, they got people calling them the N-word. Mm. And, and that dichotomy is just huge for them. And so, you know, that fine line between knowing what the active ingredient is and tap dancing can be dangerous. And I have to walk it very often. Um, you know, I I get checks to help people manage this in a business setting. People aren't going to keep writing checks if I go in there with a tenor and a tone that doesn't progress change deliberately. Now, again, my voice will never be decolonized, excuse me. I am very clear up front when I meet with clients to say, this is who I am. This is what I do. Look at my social media. I'm consistent with this. I am not going to come in here placating you know, your white staff is going to see pictures of Black people being lynched. And um, we're going to have this conversation. And so if this is what you're looking for. Let's do it. And there's a level of empathic awareness that has to come along with it if your true goal is sustainable change. And my true goal is sustainable change. And so even though I'm not coming out to placate or to... Um, take care of white supremacists in transition, Um, I am aware of the fact that there is a particular um, approach that is most appropriate for um, sustainable change.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you walk in the room and punch the CEO in the face, you're probably not going to get hired like this right right, right right
2: that's why zoom that's why zoom is so great right now cuz all all of those restrictions are there but no i mean it is uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's i haven't a had to make
0: that mistake again it's been good to... <laughs> thank you
2: zoom it's a, it's, thank a, you. A, it's a ba- it's a balance uh it's a balance um you know i, I get for instance i love how merriam webster uh the dictionary people um they're now changing their definition of racism because as a DEI consultant what i would get from people when we talk about the fact that uh black people in america can't be racist towards white people in america they can discriminate but by definition they can't they would go to the dictionary.com and pull it up and they say well the definition says nothing about power and i'm like well that's a colonized definition and just last year merriam-webster came out with an article that said we are redefining racism we haven't touched this in in several decades and we realize that our effort to not have a position, turned out to be a position. And so now they're changing the definition to incorporate structural racism into the definition because if it doesn't have a structure that supports it, it's discrimination. Um, So to the white dude who went to the rib shack in Compton and didn't get the red carpet rolled out to him, he goes back to Hancock Park and he's just like, they were so racist down in Compton at the rib shop. We got to get one on La Brea so we don't have to go down there so we can get us some good barbecue. And what happened was not racism. He may have experienced discrimination, but it wasn't racism because he can go get ribs anywhere he wants. He can have, he can pay somebody to go get him ribs. Beastie Boys. Oh, the Beastie Boys experienced racism when they tried to enter hip hop. No, they didn't. They were discriminated against. They were certainly discriminated against. But the Black people in hip hop didn't have enough power to stop those three Jewish dudes from getting a record deal. They would have gotten a record deal no matter what. That's the difference between racism and discrimination. And I need people to understand that. And so I have to present it um, in a way, you know, and it's funny, we can't, there's certain things we can't talk about anymore. And so I'm going to frame this like, there was this great character on TV, his name was Cliff Huxtable, Dr. Cliff Huxtable. And there was this one episode of the Huxtables where uh, he was talking to his son and he was talking about delivery difference. And he said, you know, what's your favorite meal? And he told him whatever, and he's like, "Well, what if I serve that to you on a garbage can lid?" And it's kind of like, okay. So it's not about like sympathizing and holding hands. It's about you know, if my kid's not eating vegetables, I might you know blend the cauliflower up and put it inside of a fresh baked chocolate chip cookie so they get some cauliflower.
1: Um, the on the tap on the idea of tap dancing, and I I don't really subscribe to it. Um but i i think you're always going to i mean there's always going to be people who think that regardless i mean that's just kind of their job course. in life is to uh, point at the the people in the arena and say they're doing it wrong but they they they're not doing anything um it's have you ever read uh black bourgeoisie 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 is, you have yes uh-huh. i have it
2: here
1: i'm uh, Where it's is next it? up on my it's next up on my list but i've been in the abstract and really just trying to understand like how a lot of what you're talking about, like how it's affected middle-class blacks in America, how they've been colonized and how they are attacking and attacked by other black, black Americans. And I think that kind of plays into this. Oh, well, you're an uncle Tom. Oh, well, you're too black. Like there's this, get put in this weird middle place where it's like nah like i'm actually i'm actually trying to move this forward um and that that perpetuates the power
0: dynamic between white and black as well because it's another oh i mean it was designed that that way because if you
2: can yeah well this is all grounded in white supremacy i mean we have to be clear about that like Mm -hmm. The separation of different groups within groups is all designed by uh, white supremacy to maintain, um, you know, this business continuity model. Um, mm-hmm. And we do have to look inside those spaces to, you know, break that apart. I mean, I think it was Outcast who was just like, is every nigga with dreads for the cause? Is every nigga with goals for the pause? No, so don't get caught up in appearance, right? And I think, yeah, Kwame and I. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when you think about those, pieces intraculturally it's important to make the note that we can't you know gauge who's who's based on what and you know when you bring up the book the black bourgeoisie or you know I have right here I have the black bourgeoisie somewhere here but um, the divine nine by uh, Lawrence Ross is about the development of black fraternities and sororities Mm. um, you know that same group of people if you talk about you know the talented tenth by Du Bois we're talking about uh, Our Kind of People is a great one that you want to pick up. I enjoyed Our Kind of People people better than um, the Black bourgeoisie. Although the Black bourgeoisie uh, was more um, data-based, uh, Our Kind of People has narratives, and it actually breaks down into different geographies of the development of wealthy Black communities um, in different cities. Um, but there's a balance, right? I know a lot of really, really rich Black people, and I know a lot of really, really poor Black people, um, and the really, really rich black people I know, they're all invested in making the community right. And, you know, when we think about like these elite black organizations, like the, um, our fraternities and sororities, and I'm in a black fraternity, I'm, I'm, an, I'm in a member of Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity incorporated. Oh, alpha. my dad's an and i uh, And all right, all right. Good company. Um, we're doing things that are, even though we're associated with this kind of talented 10th that Du Bois described, um, most of us are doing stuff in in communities. You have to remember, um, you know, when we're looking at HBCUs and some of these elite people, these are the individuals who are making change across the nation right now. I mean, Kamala, um, excuse me, Vice President Kamala Harris is a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated And, you know, in spite of me going to Hampton University, she's a Howard graduate, a historic, a a major HBCU. And so, you know, we have to um, be careful with allowing that trope of white supremacy to create this division and divisiveness such that we don't honor the contributions of people from every single layer of our communities. Um, and, and don't get it twisted. Like, we see this in other communities. Like, if you look at the Asian American community and you dissect them across different cultural um, origins, yeah. you find that lighter skinned Asian Americans. Are doing far better than darker skin, darker skin Asian Americans, and so cultures like Cambodian and Filipino, who are stereotypically darker than those who are Korean or uh, Japanese um, or Chinese, you see hugely disparate outcomes. Um, Cambodians and Vietnamese people are not doing as well as Chinese and Japanese people, and well, so the, we have to the addition. idea of whiteness has
1: permeated everything. I mean, I'm a big fan of anime, so in the in Japanese culture you can see the preference towards lightness in the character decisions and the drawing decisions for characters in anime. And this is of back course. to yeah. the beginning of anime yeah. and then I was talking to my my buddy who's Chinese. He's like, "Oh yeah, well like that that's really prevalent in Asian culture the colorism because for one thing like uh, there's a, there's a poor factor like if you were out in the fields working in rice paddies, you would be darker, right? Like, yeah. And so there was this colorism yeah. thing happening, almost a caste-ish system uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. that's put upon the, the more melanated, the more colored. I think my mom and sister experienced it. My mom lived in Taiwan for a year. My sister was with her for six months. My sister is about my complexion. My mother is very close to Keith's complexion. So, mm. and they were in what was a rural city in, in Taiwan, which had like 600,000 people. Like, it's crazy. Um, but like they were treated differently just, just on look. Right. Uh, yep. but people just don't know. Yep. It's real. Um, you mentioned a couple times I think three or four times now you said empathetic,
2: empathetic awareness. What do you mean by that? Well, a lot of people go around and they talk the language of cultural competency. None of the work I do is grounded in cultural competency. Competency connotes an ending point. Like you can become competent in statistics. You can become competent um, in chemistry. But because of the um, infinite permutations of culture, one can never really be competent in culture. And so I use cultural empathy as a framework. And my goal is to make it such that People are learning through a context of empathy building um, and not just content delivery. And so, you know, I work hard to weave in stories such that people can can get things, um, you know, across generations. So if I'm in a room full of women and I'm talking about anti-Black racism Um, You know, it's critical that I bring up um, examples from the Me Too movement and male fragility to help white women fall into the framework of understanding um, their white fragility. And so when I say I, I say things like, oh, you know, when we were at the beginning of the Me Too movement, you'll hear a guy say, I'd love to tell Jane that that's a pretty dress. But no, that's sexual harassment. I'm like, no, that's your male fragility popping out because you can give an appropriate compliment, um, if you got rid of some of the toxicity. And so I have to give examples like that so that white women are able to build an empathic bridge or an empathic pathway, um, to break their dissonance and then build this association to say, wow, um, I may not, you know, actually get the experience because I haven't had it but you know maybe I can see how that lady chasing that little boy in the hotel lobby for that cell phone when everybody has an iPhone maybe I can see how that's biased now maybe I can see how my reaction to that was fragile and that I need to work on it and so empathy for me Is kind of empathy and mindfulness are kind of the groundings of where I send people. Um, I need you to pay attention to your, that's why I appreciated um, your cleansing breaths when we first started the call, Um, because even though I don't do a mindfulness exercise at the beginning of my trainings, um, I always do the definition of mindfulness and indicate that it's a theory and not just this envelope term. Um, And it's about allowing yourselves to feel the experience that you're having and not judge it. Uh, because when we judge it, we throw it away we say, no, I can't have thought that because I'm not racist. And it's like, well, you did, and what are you going to do about it? Um, and so, um, that's building empathy in my opinion. I think
1: what you, I mean, thank you for explaining that. And, um, the, I think what you just said kind of informs the conversation that we were having about the idea of tap dancing or just the idea of like, how do you communicate this to somebody? Um, if you walk in the room and verbally smack somebody and be like, Hey man, you're a white supremacist. Um, when that defensive response kicks up, you can't do the work that you need to do to get them to, to get to a place of cultural empathy because that requires a lot of inner work and getting somebody yep. to subscribe to doing work on themselves is almost impossible. You can lead them to the water. You can't make them drink it. But if you start by smacking them, you, you can't even get them to the water
2: yeah yeah and and, but some and i want to i want to also be careful with that right because sometimes some shit warrants a smack yeah and i'm unwilling to not smack right if if it warrants that um you know that people oftentimes make the uh comparison between um malcolm x and martin luther king and their Mm -hmm. kind of uh way of delivery and way of exploration i'm more malcolm than i am martin Um, and so, you know, it's important that, and I, I would never, uh, besmudge the legacy of Dr. King, but I also believe that towards the end of his life, he recognized that his approach may have not garnered the, um, kind of catalyzation, the movement, Mm. um, in a way. And he was actually in his writings, not moving more towards who Malcolm was, but he was certainly um, thinking critically uh, about his approach. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not, again, I'm not speaking bad on the nonviolent movement. I think it did uh, produce obviously some amazing efforts and some amazing changes, but I don't think that would have happened absent sure. the Malcolm X movement and be. the black power movement, because, if those two things didn't exist, people would have, would have seen Martin as too extreme. Mm-hmm. And so they then had this point of reference that allowed them to attach themselves to the lowest hanging fruit and other all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um Now, that lower rubric is no longer there, right? And so the mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter movement for a lot of people is just, like, oh, they're too extreme. I can't mm-hmm. even say it in a sentence. And so I never know. Com- yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's
1: That's a great distinction. And, and I, I completely agree. Like there's, there's a, there's a, there's a time and a place for shock and awe and and sometimes it's in a place where you don't even think it would normally fit and it, and it works beautifully. It helps, it helps,
0: uh, it's a a funny, funny thing, shame. Um, I wouldn't call it my, um, driving motivator to, to change for others, but sometimes it's necessary. I'm often reminded I was on a bus in Chicago. This is not race related, but, uh, back when I lived there and I sat in the, the handicap seats, right. Um, right at the front of the bus, it's full It's commute, morning commute. Um, this, this, uh, blind guy with a cane gets, gets on the bus and I didn't even think about it. Like, I mean, this was 15 years ago or so. I didn't even think about it. I was just like, okay, I hope he's okay, right? And this woman across the the aisle looked at me and this guy next to me. It was about my age at the time. It was, you two should be ashamed of yourself, right? I'll get up then. Now, to your point, Rodney, my instant reaction is fine. Get up right? Like you, you got two legs. I didn't say this out loud, but it's like, okay, (laughs) that's cool. Like you, you, you do your thing now in the moment. That's, that was the, the, the process to which she chose to, to embark. And I would have been totally open to a much more light conversation. But at the same time, after that, I never sat at the front of a bus again. Like I don't even sit on buses. (laughs) <laughs> um is completely changed I don't sit
1: on buses no more.
0: I'm done with buses. Wait, so but this? I certainly won't sit in the seat. And the point being is sometimes it's necessary to affect change. It's not necessarily the only way or the first way, but it does need to exist, or else you're you're it's it's just gonna tick 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 down the road and nothing's going to change in a material way
1: what do y'all think of this i've heard it said that shame is not an effective teacher but guilt is
2: um what do y'all think about that according to freud they're they go hand in hand shame and guilt are part of the um kind of same level of experience and you know I, I think that they both bring about a lot of um harm in that, when we feel shame, we oftentimes don't allow our dissonance uh, to be bridged. So cognitive dissonance, uh, just to, just for people who don't know what it is, is this thought of these two competing ideas in your head at the same time, and you have tension associated with, that, with with that bridge. And the result of cognitive dissonance is you do one of two things. You either change the truth or you change your behaviors. And so when we're talking about shame and guilt... Um, a lot of people would say that shame will oftentimes make people change the truth, and guilt will oftentimes make people change their behaviors. And so we need to figure out how to advance the conversation so that people are authentically changing their behavior. So think about, for instance, the institution of enslavement, and you got this white guy who owns a plantation, goes to church every Sunday, goes to Bible school, loves his wife and family. Yet every night he's taking this leather whip and breaking the back of a black person who he owns on this prison plantation. Right. He has dissonance. He's saying, I am a kind God-fearing human being yet I am taking this uh, whip and open and, and you know beating this slave until his back opens up and bleeding everywhere. Mm-hmm. these two things can't be the case. And so we knew that planters were feeling such shame as was the American South that they instead of changing their behavior, which is what guilt might have um, compelled them to do, shame compelled them to change the truth. Now what was that truth that they changed? We're better. They, Humanity. They, yeah. They said that this person beating is not even a human being. Yeah. And that that just dismantles oh, and the law, the, the, the constitution. constitution, right? Like, yeah. the, oh, well, you three, had to do that yeah. in order to solidify to codify the new truth attention. Yeah, yeah. To codify the new truth. That's exactly right. And so, in order for me to help white people eliminate all tension associated with the maintenance of the enslavement of black people, I have to institutionalize their dehumanization. And that's what happened so that that white man could still go to church, love his wife and rape the black enslaved women and beat the men and cut their feet off when they escaped. And so that dissonance, excuse me, that shame has created an institution where today in 2021, a police officer can kneel on my neck, as though I'm an animal, because of the shame of the institution of enslavement that resulted in white superiority, or the or the the solidification of it.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: so, you know, and I, I think that full circle leads back to the reason the for the drama, yeah. Men. Um, that that we're not paying attention to the fact that there were legitimate strategies employed to maintain not just white supremacy but people of color inferiority, and if we don't honor that, we're not going to be able to 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 truly um, work to dismantle it. There's uh... it goes
1: so deep as to even Keith. I heard you say eugenics a second ago. Many. I would say if I asked 10 Americans on my street if it, what they know about eugenics, I would guess that 30% of them would say, oh, is not that have something to do with Hitler? Many of them don't know that it started here and was like apartheid even. Like all those systems were built on this system and how we do it and how we're racist. And eugenics was built on the ideas here. And most people don't know that. Like we've re- rewritten to back to the whole – Changing the truth, we've just rewritten the history. It's like, well, no, the Germans were bad. They were horrible. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. There's, there's uh, that happened in like 1940. Like this shit was going on way before, way before.
1: before. Uh,
0: And, and there's an interesting uh, modern correlation to, I mean, the the obvious of what you explain for dissonance that creates that shame versus guilt of owning slaves, going to church, and whipping them at the same time. But today we often use the law to justify our perceptions um, of let's take the way we treat immigrants in this country. Well, it's illegal. So we can put them in a cage, yep, right? Cages. Yep. Or, right? Or we can throw them wherever we want because it's illegal. Forget the humanity, the justice, the the righteousness of however we act. It is often just created, or these stories are created because, well, you broke the law. The same thing goes with police. The same thing goes with police. It's like, well, that was that was what they were trained to do. It's like, but that doesn't justify the action, right? Laws
2: change, morals don't. And so as long as we can be grounded in the longevity of morals and humanity, you know, the laws are going to change consistently and you know when we pay attention to kind of what you just described um, and you know how this lives today, America had a business continuity model. Um, you know think about blockbuster I always give this analogy of blockbuster those who are old enough to remember Blockbuster can remember walking through the aisles of Blockbuster. That's my second job. Yeah, that's my second job. (laughs) Yes, yes. So, you know, we will walk through the aisles of Blockbuster with our partners or whomever and, you know, spend hours, get five movies, watch one, forget to rewind the other one and, you know, pay 35 extra dollars when you got back. Somebody came to Blockbuster and they were like, listen, there's going to be a time where you're going to be able to watch any movie you want from your living room. Blockbuster was like, no, everybody's going to be walking through these aisles forever. Blockbuster didn't have a business continuity model. And as a result, there's one Blockbuster left in the entire world.
1: There's a really good podcast on that, too, on that. Like, they, oh, really? they were actually at the table with Netflix. Like, they were invited
2: and they, they chose. I know. Not to- they said, yeah. no, thank you. Yeah, I thought it was Redbox at first. But yeah, whomever it was, they were at the table and they said, no, thank you. The reason I give that analogy is that in 1860, America was exporting over 80 percent of the world's cotton on this business model that required no payment for labor. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a surprise when we were on the brink of emancipation. Right. The the, the should have been rumbling. It wasn't kind of like, oh, so by 1844, 1850, a memo had gone out. Dear World White Supremacists, we are in danger of losing our free labor force. And so that's when you begin to see the development of vagrancy laws and convict leasing practices begin in the 1840s. As they begin to develop out what would be the 13th Amendment to the Constitution and the Emancipation Proclamation, They'd already baked in these systemic structures that would allow black people to be arrested and then placed back on the plantation a decade before they even developed the actual structure that was going to emancipate them. And then we see inside the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, the baked in clause that if you're a criminal, you can be re-enslaved. 80% of of the world received cotton from America. In my first book I researched, I didn't research it, it was already in another book, I cite another book that looked at the birth records of these, I mean, that looked at the birth records of children in Northwest UK to demonstrate that all their fathers, in some way, their careers, their occupations, were tied to the cotton trade, whether they were tapestry makers, mill mill runners, whatever it was, the global economy and the way that it existed in the 1860s had never existed before. There was danger to losing that. And what we've seen is each generation of Black people in America and in across the world, in, in every Euro-normative nation, has experienced some sort of component of this business continuity model. Prison hmm. privatization, all these pieces have been efforts to maintain the broken dissonance associated with my humanity. Every piece of it.
1: Russell Brand's podcast, he had a, um, an African professor on that teaches at a university in the UK. And he broke down, like he, he, he pulled up a, a law firm in the UK that had, at the time of this podcast was celebrating like its 400th anniversary. And he was like, you know what they were founded on? They were like one of the premier law firms or, or banister firms for uh, the shipping industry. Yeah, 400 yeah. years ago. Like, what were they doing? And well, and he and the ins- about and the re- insurance. Insurance. Talk. Oh my God, you gotta insure these this property, right? Like it's which that
0: in of itself then leads to the study of eugenics that is justified based on the fact that black people are imprisoned, are imprisoned. at a higher rate, regardless yeah, okay. of why, that now they are more savage, more now violent. The now the flywheel
1: spinning. Now all of a sudden oh.
0: things keep going and then it leads to apartheid. I mean, it leads to the Holocaust. It leads to apartheid. All of the study of, of eugenics. And you just see that business continuity that these well, things business, of white supremacy that maintain it. And I have one last question before Rodney's last question. But on, go ahead, Rodney. On
1: business continuity, I mean, the Emancipation Proclamation was a business deal. Like Lincoln says that he saw no other way. And it it wasn't a moral, I saw no other way. It was, I saw no other way to defeat the South. They have this free engine that gives them unlimited cash. We can't beat an army that has an unlimited cash source. So in order to dismantle them, oh, wait, it's a great cash source. Let's make this a nationwide cash cash source, and we'll break that down. So we'll end this insurrection of terrorists, which... Or dissidents or traitors, or whatever you want to call it, like, that's what it was. Right. And right. even though it's not remembered that way, awkwardly enough, um, there's still no, a lot of statues pride everywhere. In it. There's still a lot of pride in it, yet And they okay. lost. And they lost, and they were traitors. Dave Chappelle just did a special. He was like, the cap the January 6th, the Capitol Insurrection. They carried a Confederate flag down the rotunda. He's like, the Confederate army didn't even fucking do that. He's like <laughs> Like, are you serious? Like, we have gone very far. We've gone very far afield. Um, but yeah, it was a business deal. Like this whole, like dude, yeah. you're saying, business continuity—that's the perfect word for it because yeah. it, it fits the ethos of America. And that's, you know, people hear you hear someone like me attack capitalism, and they're like, "Whoa, well, well, you don't like America?" And I'm like, "Well, yeah, kind of," because it goes hand in hand with the the the, the 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 ethical problems that we have in this country. Yep, a thousand
0: percent before we get to our final question for the purposes of the nuance of the conversation about your research,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: like what's your research showing right now?
2: It's showing that there was this one scene on, um, in ghost where Whoopi Goldberg came to Demi Moore. She was like, girl, you in danger. (laughs) We in danger. That's what my research is showing. Um, you know, and I, it's funny that that is top of mind because I oftentimes use that as when I'm talking to Hollywood, uh, uh, people in that industry as one of the examples of the um, magical Negro trope that is utilized throughout film and what that means. And, you know, I always say, oh, and she was literally the magical Negro in this. And, you know, so I talk about like Sidney Portier and how, you know, you never see any of the important things that they care about or that they love. It's just kind of like their entire goal is to support the goals of the white protagonist in the film. And right now, that's what I'm seeing in the research is that the goal of the world right now is to support our white protagonist mm. is to support this kind of stage play that has been created and curated. Um, that's just, just as Isabel Wilkerson says in her book, it's a cast, um, not like in the Indian caste system, although, uh, that's what she references as well. It's a cast and we've all been structured to play a certain role my research is demonstrating the solidification of that and and what we need to do to dismantle it. Um, You know, one of the biggest results that can come from our research is for people to understand the magnitude of what needs to be undone so that they really appreciate um, the work that has to go into undoing it. I remember real early on in some of these movements, and I'm not a big marcher, right? I'm not I'm not the guy who's out with a sign marching like I'm gonna be in my office writing a book about it, writing an article about it, doing an interview about it. That's my contribution to this space. Um, but I was saying, saying all that to say was that, you know, when you look at how all these things kind of fashion themselves, how they play out in the world, um, thinking about how we fit into this space, thinking about the work that's required to undo it is critical because we have not honored the magnitude of time that has gone into curating what we're currently in. And my hope is that people come out of this, at least from my contributions, seeing that, wow, this is much bigger than I thought it was. Um, And I, I need to put effort into it that's heavier. I remember being guilty of, you know, being an old dude when I would do presentations, and this is as recent as the last six months where I've said, you know, if I was on, the, I make, I make a joke. I said, if I was on the committee when they were naming the defund the police um, efforts, you know, I would have not named it that, and I realized that that was such a colonized view and how I was not honoring. The people who put that together because they didn't need me at the table because I mm-hmm. would have been the voice that said, "Hey, guys, you might want to tone that down a bit. Nobody's going to be ready to hear that." But we've been begging for this shit for generations, and in. suddenly, defund the police is having systems be dismantled and reimagined all across the country. Mm. I saw a video of a little girl two weeks ago in Rochester, New York being maced by police officers. Her parents had called the police because, had called emergency services because she was having a mental health um, concern and she was considered a danger to herself or others, which is the language utilized to deploy mental health professionals out. But police officers came out and I watched this little black nine-year-old girl handcuffed in the back of a police car being maced by adults. And so... Even me with all the knowledge and research and information and cadence and unafraidness, if that's even a word that I have, with it. I love fearlessness, it. I still sit in the space where my mind is colonized. And I say things like, well, I would have never named to defund the police. That's me and my academic privilege and my financial privilege and all this other privilege that I have. When, when I walk out my door yeah, I'm in danger of getting fucked up by the police, but not as in much danger as people who live in over-surveyed communities, like that little boy who was 18 years old walking home from his job at Walmart in Texas and got arrested, or the other dude who just got shot and killed by the police in September down in Orange County for jaywalking. And so when when I think about how even me with all this knowledge and all this experience and all this information is still in danger of spewing colonized language by saying things like, well, it shouldn't be called defund the police. And now I'm like, hell yeah, it should be called defund the police. Look at the catalyzing movement that has occurred where in five years from now, when that family in Rochester calls about a concern with mental health, Armed police officers are not going to be deployed to their home to deal with their nine year old daughter. Mental health professionals or social workers will be there. Mm-hmm. That's what defund the police is about. Yeah. And I feel bad that I, in many ways, have said, Why are you guys doing that? Well, ba- Baldwin and now I'm moved to that. a space where I'm able to say, Yes, that is appropriate. Push this shit. Baldwin talks about that. We're all. I
1: mean, when when white is the norm, When we're all susceptible to thoughts of real of saying white is the norm and and acquiescing Um, and the whole the whole uh, magical Negro fallacy uh, is a whole bar. I I don't know how many times I've said in panels or talking to white execs in the tech world where I live. I am not a unicorn. I'm actually amongst my black engineering counterparts. I'm mediocre. Like you just like me because I know how to navigate and not make you feel too bad about yourself. But like I'm I'm an okay engineer. <laughs> like like I'm there are there are there's way lots more.
2: of us out there. Lots.
0: Um we're at time I wanna, wanna say we have one last question, but first thank you for thank indulging you. this conversation without thank getting you. to know you as a person. <laughs> oh,
1: man, like we're to. <laughs> but, but at the um, same time, we kind of did, did get to know yeah. you. Like I actually, one of the things I wrote down here is like, I, I, I kind of named you fire and empathy. Um, the last question, given this amazing conversation, what do you want to leave this audience with to think about as, as we wrap this?
2: I would love to leave this audience with a call to action, Um, you know, really to look at what it is in each of our collective spaces that we're able to affect change in. Um, And and to be honest about how you experience otherness, how you engage it, how you approach it, because that's the only way we're gonna meet true change. I want you to be able to acknowledge when you see me, you thought I was gonna steal your purse. Like I need you to be able to say that to yourself. You ain't gotta say it to me, but you gotta say it to yourself. I need you to say when that person cuts you off in traffic and you roll up next to him and you looking like, I knew it was you, that you had a racist thought against an Asian American or an ageist thought against an old American for whatever stereotype that fits in. I need people to begin being honest about their bias so that they can address it. Um, You know, I'm flabbergasted by my white friends when we talk about our sons and I'm like, yeah, you know, when they're old enough to hang out, you know, my son is always going to have to get a receipt from every store that they go in and like, Oh, why is that? Like, Because he's going to be the one accused of shoplifting when he's out with all of these, um, all of his white friends, and you know, I I I need to minimize injuries, and so uh, my work is selfish. I I want the world to change, but to be honest, I just want my son to be able to develop in a space where he experiences fewer injuries than I did, and I'd invite your listeners to participate in a world where you make it such that the little girls in your life grow up in a space that is more safe than what their moms grew up in, the little black kids grow up in a space that is less racist, Um, that little LGBTQ plus kids grow up in a space that's less homophobic, that kids with different abilities grow up in a space um, that facilitates opportunities for them to uh, thrive. Um, so, So that's my goal, and that's what I'd like to leave people with.